The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, we're going to continue in our series called The Beauty of the Cross as we go to Isaiah chapter 53. As we've mentioned, we're in this four-week mini-series as we look at Jesus and we look at the cross. And this series is one where we want to really want to slow down and just ponder. We want to think. We want to look at the scriptures. Uh, we want to be encouraged by what we see. And so today we're going to Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 1. You can follow along as we read our passage for today. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, and we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had not done, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied." And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Well, this is God's word. And in our mini-series called The Beauty of the Cross, we look to Jesus and see that it is both tragic and beautiful. The beautiful cross, even the phrase, the beautiful cross, is as, almost as much of a paradox as the phrase, beautiful feet, as we saw last week from the passage, beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. So it is when we look at Jesus on the cross, in the world's eyes we see only defeat, we see tragedy and shame, but through God's eyes we see the gospel, we see the good news, the good news of our rescue through not any work of our own or not any merit or character or behavior of our own, but by the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so I want to lay before you a summary word for our passage today, and here's the word that we see this thread through the whole passage. That's the word disbelief. Disbelief. Our passage begins with the question, who can believe this? Who can understand? Who has understood what I'm about to tell you? It's unbelievable. And then it begins to tell this story of disbelief. It begins to tell a story so unbelievable, so outrageous, so upside down that there is this eagerness to tell the story, but there's also this sadness kind of expecting that no one will really believe it. No one will really understand. That's the tone of, of this writer's message today. You're not going to believe this. 
Imagine what, what circumstances, under what circumstances would you have a conversation where you begin with the phrase, you're not going to believe this. You're about to tell something outrageous. You're about to tell something truly unbelievable, but you really want them to trust you. You really want them to believe you because it's worth knowing and it's going to sound crazy, but it's really true. Or under what circumstances would you respond with the question, well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Same thing. I really want you to know. I really want you to believe, but you probably wouldn't believe me if I told you. It's so crazy. When the story goes against all expectations, when it goes against all natural or conventional wisdom, um, when it goes against all methods that we normally have. And this is the message of the cross of Jesus. It's unbelievable. It goes against all standard wisdom. We begin with disbelief and then the pas- passage builds and more unbelievable and more unbelievable until we find the answer to our disbelief at the end. And so here's the movement of Isaiah 53. He tells an unbelievable story, three astounding realities of the cross as we look at the cross and what we see. It's so hard to believe. And here is what we find. We find that Christ suffered much worse than we thought. We see that we are far worse than we imagined, but the answer is far greater than we ever hoped. This is the unbelievable story. Let's begin there is that Christ suffered far more than we thought. When you consider the suffering of Christ, if I ask you, tell me how Christ suffered, it'd be natural for us to go right to the cross. We think of the physical suffering that Jesus endured as he hung on a cross, nailed to it, and died. And yet it's possible that his physical suffering was not nearly the hardest part. Our passage calls him a man of sorrows. A man acquainted with grief. Verse 1 to 3 can be seen as a summary of Jesus' entire life. First, he was born as a king, but there, was no, there were no signs of his royal status in his early days. For 30 years, he was an ordinary human being. No one, no one that you'd pick out of a crowd and think that he was anything really important or anything of uh, any, any, any person you needed to pay attention to. He began his ministry and he was despised by most people. He was rejected. And then we see the hostility toward Jesus that would reach its ultimate climax at the cross where he died. Would you think about how people responded to Jesus over the course of his life? Let's even start before his life. Let's even start before he was even born. When his mother Mary was about to give birth and they were looking for a place to stay. Even before Jesus took his first breath, no one gave him room. He was rejected before his first breath. He was condemned by the Jewish leaders um, of of the, the culture that he was a part of. He was mocked by the crowds as they gathered to hear of his teaching. He was sentenced to death as a terrorist by the Roman government. He was spit, his people spit in his face. And finally, he was murdered as a criminal. From his very first breath to his very last breath, the world thought very little of Jesus. The world thought very little of him. We look at Jesus and we see that not much was made of him. Tim Chester reflects on his humanity from the book called The Beautiful Cross, which we've been uh, using as an aid for our series. And he says this, If you'd walk past Jesus in the street, you wouldn't have picked him out of the crowd. Jesus looked just like anyone else because he was just like anyone else. He worked hard for a living just like you. He was hungry just like you. He was misunderstood, grew tired at times, got sick, was disappointed, 
and betrayed by friends just like we are. He was just as we are. The difference was that he didn't sin. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. And it's here Isaiah shows us the true humanity of Jesus and the true human suffering that he endured far greater than any degree that you and I have ever endured. It really takes away that glow from Jesus that we think appears as he walks down the street. Picture Jesus walking and you think that there's this glow that's behind him. You imagine Jesus walking on a crowded street or sidewalk. Don't you think that, like, that people just kind of part so that he can have his way? Don't you think that if he went into restaurants, he would gain respect from the servers? And, and everything he said was like liquid gold that just fell on people's hearts and ears. Far from the truth of what Jesus experienced. You and I would have walked past Jesus, maybe got too close and bumped our shoulders to his, and we maybe gave a moment of thought as we turned back and said, I'm sorry, buddy, and then we'd keep going. That was Jesus. That was God who we just bumped into, but we never would have known. Except there's a difference between Jesus and us, and everything that Jesus did, everything in his life, every action, every thought, every circumstance, everything that was done to him was moving constantly towards a singular point in history. His crucifixion, everything that happened moved towards the direction, in the direction and towards the cross where he would die. And he moved in this direction purposely. He gave himself to this cause purposely. Jesus reflects on the week before his crucifixion. In John 12, his emotions are reflected here and recorded. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Would you reflect for a moment with me and pause? Jesus was not caught by surprise by his crucifixion. He was not caught off guard. But there was this moment in his life where all of a sudden everything that had happened to him and everything that had happened in his life and every circumstance that have led him to this point comes into his human psychology and emotion and grips him which, with such immense suffering and passion that he cannot ignore. He knew he was going to the cross. But it's here at this moment we see how it affected him when everything comes in and he realizes it in all of his, his intensity that he was going to be crushed by the father that he loved for something he never did. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the most redone song in the history of music, said grief was his intimate, inseparable companion. When you look at Jesus' life and you look at the suffering he endured throughout his life, his physical death, death seemed to be like a relief. It didn't seem to be the worst thing. What would it be like to have grief and sorrow as your intimate, inseparable companion? This is beyond belief. It's beyond belief that anyone would have a life like this, but especially God, God incarnate, that he would have such an existence, that he would endure such pain, that he would endure such rejection, betrayal, and sorrow in his life. His crucifixion was something horrible, but his life was unseparated from sadness. This disbelief continues the more we look at Jesus, but we understand that maybe this story is so unbelievable 
We have, we're, we're disbelieving that something could be so bad for Jesus. Last week we said that the cross of Jesus is like a mirror. And as we look at the cross, what reflects back is a truer picture of ourself. And so not only in this passage does Isaiah show us uh, an unbelievable picture of the suffering of Jesus, but also shows us here that we are far worse than we, than we imagine. We're far worse than we thought possible. Our culture tells us that, that all of us are basically good people that slip up from time to time. We, we make mistakes. And today, more than ever, people apologize for things without ever admitting wrongdoing. A lie is no longer a lie. It's no longer lying. It's telling untruths. Have you heard that? I discovered that word recently. That an un, it's not a lie. It's an untruth. What's an untruth? Slander has evolved to be from slander to misspeaking. Abuse is misstepping and fraud is miscalculating. See, these aren't sins anymore. These aren't, these aren't uh, wrongdoing. They are just missteps. They are mistakes. We slip up from time to time. And the real problem over time is not that we, our view of sin has changed or evolved. The problem is that we don't see sin the way God sees sin. And Isaiah wants to do something to us in verses 4 to 6. He wants to hold our heads, uh, one hand on each side of our head, and looking at the cross, he wants us to see what does God view sin to be? What is sin really like? He won't let us off the hook so easily when we merely look at the cross and admit that, yes, we've made mistakes from time to time, but nobody is perfect. We've done bad things. We haven't lived like we should sometimes. Isaiah says, not so fast. I'm not going to let you off the hook so quickly. The passage shows us that the blood of Christ is on our hands. And verse 3 says that he was despised and rejected by men, meaning mankind, by all of us. The Bible affirms this reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one has done as God has instructed us to do. It's tempting to stand at the cross and say, what a sad and tragic thing to happen to this man. But what have I ever done to deserve that? You see, the Bible teaches and we teach that Jesus died in the place of sinners. And that means that Jesus died in the place of you and I. That means that you and I deserve to be crucified. You and I deserve to pay the penalty for our sins, which is death. But Jesus died in our place. And it's easy to say, of course, what a horrible thing. He's died for really bad people. But I have never done anything that bad to deserve that kind of death. Isaiah says, you may have not been in the crowds shouting for Jesus' crucifixion. You may have not spoken words to despise him on that day. But think of the times you've rejected his commands. Think of the times you've despised his people. Think of the times you've disobeyed his will or denied his wisdom. Think of the ways that when Jesus has been presented to you and you've turned from his way of thinking and turned to your own ways of thinking as being superior in wisdom and better and more practical way of living life and treating others. He continues to be despised. We look at this passage and we see that Jesus' being despised is not just a thing of the past, but he continues to be rejected. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is the story of Jesus' life and of his death, that God is with us and us against God. 
God with us. That's the story of Christmas, that God came to be with us. And the story of our reaction to it is us against God. God came to stand with us and we stood against him. God came to be on our team and to fight our battles and we played for the other team, shooting, shooting baskets and scoring points for the other team. The great theologian Martin Luther and great reformer said of, that Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6 should be written in gold lettering in all of our Bibles. Because as here in this passage, it is most essential, most beautiful, most good for us to see. Pay attention to the pronouns, he says. Pay attention to the pronouns in this. He has borne our grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised. We are healed. He, our, we, him, our, his. Do you see this transaction? Isaiah had a parallel to talk about how this worked out in his time, and he connected it to the parallel of the, of the sacrificial system that God gave to his people. God gave them the process of substitution through sacrifice, the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the people, the scapegoat that was provided for God's people. You're familiar with that terminology, right? The scapegoat. Let me ask you, is the scapegoat a, a thing you want to be or not want to be? Is this a negative or positive thing? You don't need to know. You might not know what, it, what its theological significance is, but you know that you don't want to be it. The scapegoat is not something you wanted to be. Here's how the scapegoat and sacrificial lamb process worked. They were given two goats, two lambs. One lamb was killed, the blood was poured out, paying the price for the sins of the people, died. The second lamb, priests would pray over the lamb, which was placing the burden of sin, the, the guilt of sin, on this lamb, and then they'd send this lamb away out of the gates of their city, and it would wander off into the horizon until it died. Take our sins far away from us, and this other lamb die for our sins so that our sins could be atoned for. Christ does both. Isaiah says that he, bore, he has borne our guilt, he's borne our grief, and he has carried our sorrows. He has died in our place, and he's carried our sins away and they are no more. The cross of Jesus does not exist for our inspiration. It exists for our substitution. It is so easy this time of the year, especially to look on Easter, to look on Good Friday and say, God, thank you for all you have done for me. This year, I'm going to be a more faithful follower of you. You see, we look at the cross and we feel inspired all that you have done for me it will help motivate me to be a better person for you. And for the vast majority of people, that's Christianity. But the cross is not for our inspiration. It's for our substitution. It's not meant to inspire us. It is meant to swap places with us because we are far worse than we imagined. And this is not just the central part of this passage of substitution. It is the central part of the entire story of God. Verses 4 to 6 is a central part of the whole of Scripture, the whole story, that, he, that we needed someone to take our place. If you think that, that, God, that you did not need Jesus to take your place, you're not that bad. Then you believe in a, in, in, in a different kind of news, a different kind of gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's not good news. 
It causes us to keep coming back to the cross and saying, okay, this year it didn't work again. I tried to live up to, to the person you wanted me to be, but I keep finding myself coming back to the cross and needing a Savior. It's not until we see that He is our substitute, that He swaps places with us, that we can truly believe that our sins are paid for and our guilt is carried away off into the horizon to never return. We're far worse than we ever imagined. Christ suffered more than we thought. We're far worse than we imagined. But the answer is far greater than you and I could ever hope for. It's far greater, far more beautiful, more lovely. It's sweeter. It's happier than you ever could hope. And honestly, I feel so vulnerable and limited here because I can't even understand it. How am I going to help you understand it? And so let's just go to the text. Let's look at God's word and, and try to figure this out together. Look again at verse 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Every ounce of rebellion, this is what it's saying, every ounce of guilt, every curse of sin, every piece of shame that is ours has been transferred to Jesus. And in exchange, what is transferred to us is healing and peace and His righteousness. He gets what we deserve, we get what He deserves. Christ died for sinners. And some wonder, why was He silent? Why would Jesus do this? Why didn't he defend himself? The God incarnate, the Son of God, the one who had never did anything wrong, why did he stay silent? Why didn't he defend himself? That's what we would have done. Think of how covered he was in our sin. Every piece of guilt that you have felt when you've done something you know is wrong, every piece of guilt and shame that you felt when you didn't do something you knew you should do, but you neglected to do, that gut feeling, every, every, all that shame, all that guilt, all that transgression. Now, imagine Jesus covered in it, just covered in all that shame. It's likely that the shame of sin was placed on him, was so thick, so real, that it made him feel like he was the one who truly sinned. That's what the Bible says, that he didn't just, the sin didn't just clothe him like a coat, but he became our sin. He became our shame. So Jesus, as he was condemned, his, hung, his head hung low in shame because he felt that he was the one that committed all those sins. For the first time in his life, imagine this, Jesus felt shame when your sins were placed on him. He had never felt that feeling before. He never knew what it was like to be guilty. He had every reason to defend himself until that moment that your, your and my sins are placed on Jesus. He wasn't just quiet because he's like, I gotta, I gotta grip my teeth and get through this. He was quiet because our sins were placed on him. And he stood before his father as a guilty person, as if he had sinned himself. Your shame on him. He was like the dog that had, his, that had his tail through his legs. He wasn't pretending to feel sad. He was as one that was carrying your shame. It's unbelievable. The shame 
of our sin on him. The result of all that, the result of all that has happened is so good, better than we can even imagine. That as we look to our Savior and we see the punishment due to us was placed on him and transferred to him, and, we, and that means that we are treated as if we have never sinned. And that we are loved as if we have never done anything wrong. And all of that punishment and all of that anger, Jesus took it. He was crushed. He was crushed. What does it look like to have this kind of guilt removed? What does it look like? You're like, I want to know what that looks like to have the guilt of sin and shame removed from me. Again, Martin Luther says this, here is what you should do. Okay, some good practical stuff from a man that lived 500 years ago. Here's what you should do when you feel your sins weighing on your conscience. Don't be afraid. Instead, by faith, take them off yourself and place them on Jesus. For this text says, He has borne our iniquities. It's clear that we need to entrust our sins to Christ. If you think your sins still belong to you, then this, do, this thought does not come from God, but it comes from Satan, because it's contrary to God's word. For in God's word, God places your sins on Christ. So here's what you should say to yourself instead. I see my sins on Christ, so my sins are no longer mine. They belong to another. For I see it there on Christ. It's a great thing to be able to say, my sin is not my own. My sins have been transferred to Christ, and now they are His responsibility. How many of you feel really uncomfortable saying that? How many of you look at Jesus and say, not my sin, you deal with it? You feel like you're doing something wrong, don't you? You feel like, that can't be right. This is mine. He has shown me the way. He's died for my sins, and I owe it to Him to make this right, to make this better. Of course, we are able to say, when we feel the guilt of our sin, we say, uh-uh, not mine, that's on Jesus. But not in this arrogant, selfish, self-centered way, in this grief-stricken, but also grateful way, knowing that we, should be, we deserve punishment from God, but our sins have been placed on Jesus. He has borne our grief. He has carried our sorrows. He's been crushed in our place. It's better than we imagine. It's better than we hoped for. What he accomplished for us is so much greater than we could ever hope. To have that kind of relationship and position with God that any time Satan uh, condemns us for our sin, we say, don't make me feel guilty or shameful. That's on Jesus. He paid for my sin. I trust in him and I love him and, his, and his, he has filled my heart with, with, a, with a, a new strength to, to, to resist sin and temptation and to increasingly become more like him in my life. Everything in our culture is telling you to build your identity and hope on something else, on your looks, your money, your success, your youthfulness. It's almost impossible not to go along with it. And to just try to become better people and more accomplished so that we cannot feel shame and guilt in our life. Everything in the world uh, is telling us here are the ways that you can feel better about your life. Nicer person, better looking, more money, greater position. All of these things that we do are motivated by a desire to remove guilt and shame. 
what can I do to not feel as bad as I feel? At least I'm not like that person. This changes everything. It is almost impossible to not just walk along with the world and value those same things. Almost impossible. Almost. We are given a way out. We are given a way out of this tireless pursuit of trying to remove our guilt and shame by what we do. And it is here, Isaiah says, it's, it's by the way that God reaches down to us with his mighty hand and pulls us up out of death and rescues us. Wherever we hear God's word, the arm of the Lord is reaching down to rescue us. He's reaching down with his saving power. Isaiah says, you're never going to believe this. Do you love that? He says, you're never going to believe this. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. But if you do believe it, it means that God has reached down with his mighty arm and saved you. If you believe this unbelievable story, that Jesus has a, is a substitute for you and your hope is in what he has done, and you know that he died for you and your guilt is no more, that means that the arm of God has rescued you. He is with you and present with you. Every Christian is the result of God's saving rescue. Every Christian is the result of, his, of a miracle that has been done. No one reaches up to God. No one looks up to God and reaches up with their mighty hand and pulls themselves up. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that's what's happening. On the contrary, all throughout Scripture, we see God pursuing after sinners, God running after those who don't deserve it. And we are given this picture where God rolls up his sleeves and reaches down to our waterlogged bodies at the bottom of the ocean, pulls us up, revives our life, and saves us. And Isaiah says, is anyone listening? Is anyone listening? Are you listening? Are you listening to what he is saying? If you spend your life trying to make much of yourself, you will lose it all. You will lose your life. You will not find it. If you put yourself first, you will be last. But if you come to Jesus and you give away your right to your own life, he wipes out your sins. If you come to the cross and seeing an accurate picture of yourself and look to him for your hope, trusting in his love and grace to you, he wipes out your sins like a, like a dry erase board as he's wiping off the text and says, what sin? That sin's on Jesus. It's not on you anymore. That's already been paid. We don't need to make the gospel believable. We only need to make it truly known. Isaiah does not give us a gospel that is more believable. He even tells us it's going to be hard to understand, but he doesn't make it soft. He just tells it as it is. We need to see it for what it is. We need to tell it like it is. We need to embrace it like it is. We need to, we need to see the picture of sin as God sees our sin. We need to see the good news of our rescue as God has communicated to us. If we modify the, good, the, the message, if we modify Scripture to make, help it land softly on the ears of our family or friends or neighbors or our own ears, then we will tell a different story that actually is incapable of saving anyone. I'm just not going to go around telling people that they deserve judgment. I want to tell them of the, how, how wonderful they are and how much Jesus loves them. Then they will never find Jesus. 
That is not what leads us to the cross. When we look at the cross, what's reflected back is a true picture of ourselves, a true picture of God, a true picture of our rescue. The cross shows us so many things. If we're willing to look at it, it does show grief, it does show pain, it does show guilt, but it shows a beautiful rescue. The beauty of the cross. You may wonder, where is God in the midst of this struggle? Where is He in the midst of my guilt and my shame and my confusion in life? You may wonder where God is, and yet here you are hearing these words today. It's kind of what Isaiah is saying. He's, he's, he's almost as if he's saying, who, who can even hear these words? And yet here you are receiving them. That's something very important. Don't you see the miracle in that? You wonder, where is God in my struggle? And yet here you are. You're weary from your struggles. You're worried. You're anxious. You're troubled. And yet you came here today to hear good news. That God reached down to us in our time of our greatest need to become one of us, just like us in every way, and endured a life of suffering 30 years that would climax into the worst physical pain that anyone could imagine. He was rejected by mankind. He was crushed by God in order to take away our guilt and to give us peace. And given the chance to do it all over again, Jesus would joyfully endure it. After knowing everything that can be known, right? Not many of us would do that. We would look back on the 30 years of our life and say, that was horrible. I'm glad it's over. I never want to do it again. Jesus would say, given the chance to do it all again, knowing what I know, I would do it again for you. This is the good news. Are you listening? This is the gospel. This is the beauty of the cross. What unbelievable grace. What amazing rescue. Let's hear these words and rest in them. Let's pray.